In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, the congregation of Christians among whom the gospel is preached, and the holy sacraments are administered to the baptized faithful, is the most lovely place of your saving presence. Give us grace to ever dwell in your house, where you strengthen our faith, enliven our hope, and shield us from every enemy. Hear our prayers and teach us to rely with absolute confidence upon your gracious promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey, y'all in the narthex, come on in. We're having prayer and Bible study, and I can hear you more than... We moved this week into two weeks of meditation on confession in the Office of the Keys, which is an, an appropriate extension of last week's last part of baptism. What does such baptizing with water indicate or signify in the daily life of the Christian? And godly contrition, sorrow over sin, repentance, and then renewal or resurrection by the word of the gospel is what the baptismal life is about, and it leads us right into confession and the office of the keys. So that is listed before you on the congregation at prayer, those three questions, and let's speak them together. What is confession? Confession has two parts. First, that we confess our sins, and second, that we receive absolution. That is, forgiveness from the pastor as from God himself, not doubting but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. So two parts to confession. First, to confess. According to the word of God, the truthfulness of one's sin and need. And second, to receive absolution, which is Christ's word of forgiveness that strengthens faith, raises us to the newness of life, and that is the rhythm of life, dying and rising, confessing and being absolved. And it is that rhythm of life, the dying and rising with Christ, that is characteristic and central to the baptismal life and what, and what confession in the office of the keys then is really all about, a word of absolution for the sake of faith and newness of life. Notice how the first question emphasizes not only the absolution, but certainty. So if Christ has made promises, which he has, to his church and her ministers, that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. That is intended to give confidence and certainty to troubled consciences. All right. Second question, what sins should we confess? Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those we are not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. But before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. So we plead guilty of all sins because we're conceived and brought forth in iniquity, 
We do that generally before the Father in heaven in the words of the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. But before the pastor, that line envisions the idea of private confession and absolution for the sake of the Christian's conscience which is troubled by particular sins. So, the general absolution is proclaimed in the preaching to the whole congregation. That's a general absolution. As it is proclaimed in the preparation portion at the beginning of the service, but when the conscience remains troubled, private confession is there for the sake of absolution. Because if it's only Joe, and he's kneeling, and he confesses what really troubles him, and the absolution is spoken to him directly and specifically, it zeroes in that absolution where he hurts the most. Okay, so think of it that way as both a, an extension or a call back to the realities of one's baptism, where we are clothed with Christ's righteousness, as well as an extension of the sermon. General absolution now specifically applied to you personally. The next question, which are these before you read it, notice how ordinary that stuff is. I venture to say that no one in the room over the last week has committed the physical act of murder. I think it's probably a fairly good assumption on my part. We tend to think of confession absolution privately as being only for those what even the world would consider big sins. But what this part of the catechism emphasizes is the daily struggles with the ordinary failings and shortcomings of life. Okay, concerning these sins, we should confess, and before the pastor, when we're troubled, which are these? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Have you hurt someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Jesus is particularly good, can you imagine that? As a catechist, there's none better. When he's talking about the Ten Commandments, he does so in such a way that it removes any temptation to be a self-righteous Pharisee. Now, we can say, I've never committed murder. I've never committed adultery. That's the Pharisee. But he says, whoever is angry with his brother is in danger of the judgment. Whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Under that kind of scrutiny, who can escape? But the scrutiny isn't the end in itself. The scrutiny of God's law is to bring about contrition, godly sorrow, that we might confess and be renewed. So that leads us into the verse for the week, Psalm 130, verses 3 through 5. It's on the congregation at prayer. 
It is also printed on the board. It is also the hymn, or the uh, verse, uh, especially upon which the hymn of this week from Depths of Woe that we sang at the beginning is based. Let's speak it together. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. Now in this passage, the concept of waiting permeates. Question, what are we waiting for? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. For what? The, the word of forgiveness. This great truth. There is forgiveness with you. So I'm waiting on the Lord for that. To hear that word. Because apart from that word, there's no resurrection of the dead. Apart from that word, there is no comfort for a troubled conscience. There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. So waiting for his word of absolution. I'd mentioned to you in the past when we had this psalm, the entire one is a psalm for the week, just two weeks ago, that it is called in the Psalter a psalm of ascent. And so it was prayed like our introits. If you notice, when the introit is being sung by you or the choir or responsibly, we enter into the chancel and we walk up the steps to the altar. In the Old Testament, the psalms of ascent were those psalms especially sung, prayed, after the burnt offering outside and when the priest went in to confess sin and then at the altar of incense spread the coals, dribbled the incense, prayed for forgiveness, prayed for Messiah, and then came out and gave the ironic benediction. So... I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. And then they confess their sins. The priest does inside, they do outside. And then he comes out, I wait for the word of the Lord, my soul waits. And he says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. So that's, it was an actual liturgical thing that was going on. What's uh, among the things that are helpful in that is our faith does not exist by itself. Our faith relies upon a word of God from outside of ourselves to create it, to strengthen it. Okay? And so these Psalms of Ascent uh, indicate that. Now, not quite done with this uh, verse yet. Here we go. I found it interesting, in the Hebrew, there are the two words for Lord. This is like the personal name, I am, Yahweh, 
And this one is how he is addressed. So it's like saying, the Lord, Yahweh, is my Lord. Okay. Uh, here is Yahweh again, the Lord. So it this, these three verses name the specific God in whom and from whom there is absolution, there is forgiveness. Okay. Finally, um, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The answer is no one. If he kept a record of sins or if he held our sins against us, none of us, from the greatest saint to the lowliest sinner, could stand before the Lord. If he marked iniquities, no one could stand. But he doesn't mark iniquities. With him there is forgiveness, that he may be feared. That word for fear there, worshipped, adored, depended upon, trusted in. And so, in his word I do hope, because I have no other hope for salvation as a sinner apart from his word of absolution. Let's speak it again. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. So all of the Bible stories for this week have to do with confession. The parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin tomorrow from Luke 15. And then the parable of the prodigal son or sons divided into two parts on Tuesday and Wednesday. David's sin with Bathsheba on Thursday, which sets up the ministry of Nathan, again, word of God from outside of himself to David to call him to repentance. And in the end, you hear David saying, I have sinned, no excuses, no rationalization or self-justification. I have sinned. And then Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin. You will not die. Uh, next Sunday's Old Testament reading is um, the anointing of David. And then we bring to mind also David and Goliath. So it's quite a contrast in David when he is the man of faith who relies upon the Lord, you see him giving all glory to God there in the conquest over, over uh, Goliath. The Lord is doing this. When he relies upon himself, you see the self-centeredness and the pride. So those are the stories for the week. And the second reading will um, accent themes from the first reading. Any questions? Uh, on the, yes, Paul, quickly, Philip, make haste. Uh, congregation at prayer, the front page, the bottom, the catechism, confession, and office of the keys. Third question, what are these? Uh, second last line, have you hurt someone by words or deeds? Is there a principle here? Do I go, uh, if I suspect I've hurt some, hurt one, is, should uh, uh, I make a judgment on individual cases as to whether I should pray in this regard 
or not? Or uh, is there a principle that uh, if I suspect, uh, then I make a conditional prayer if I have hurt Pastor Bender, uh, here is my prayer in this uh, regard. Or uh, should I talk to the person directly and say, have I hurt you? Well, the first answer to the question um, needs to be answered in the context of what the catechism is talking about. What is confession? Confession has two parts. What sins should we confess? We plead guilty of all sins. Before the pastor, those sins which trouble us. And then, which are these? Consider your place in life. So the context is confessing before God generally and before the pastor specifically when there is a troubled conscience. The second part of the answer then is when someone comes to me and maybe confesses, what really troubles me is I was rude and obnoxious to Paul Wehrman. Um, then I may say, did you apologize to Paul? No. Does he know that you were rude and obnoxious? Well, I think he was totally oblivious to it. Okay. Or, yes, I think so. And I said, then I will say, I would encourage you, upon hearing the Lord's absolution for you this morning, that you would take that absolution and in the strength of it, go to your brother and tell him you're sorry. So um, that's the second part. I mean, if there's ever, you know, what really troubles me is I robbed $5,000 from uh, the quick trip. Of course, they don't have that money on hand, but just for the sake of argument. All right? Uh, did you return the money? Did you turn yourself into the police? No. You need to do that, which is a part of repentance. But the, the main context of this is what should you confess before God? Plead guilty of all sins. Uh, and what should you confess before the pastor? privately, those sins which particularly trouble you. So it's not directly answering the question, should you go to that brother or not? Generally speaking, however, the answer would be yes. Okay? All right. I want to take you into two Bible passages today under the theme in our ongoing study, which is holiness the wellspring of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. And the first passage is from Acts chapter 5. Again, holiness, the wellspring of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. Uh, what comes out of a wellspring? Water, generally speaking, yeah. It's a spring of water. To call it a wellspring means it's a water that gives life. It, it nurtures life. So holiness, the wellspring of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment, what is holiness? You know, I think that we can 
immediately gravitate to our works, are these works holy or not, and works are very much related. However, the concept of holiness is a concept that comes from the word of God, which is the only holy thing we have. It sanctifies us or makes us holy. So when we, by faith in the word of God, live according to the word of God, that is a holy life. And such a holy life lived from and according to the word of God is indeed a wellspring of happiness, contentment, and fulfillment. Not the kind of happiness that the old Adam seeks, not the kind of fulfillment or contentment that the old Adam seeks by getting its appetites and desires met, but the happiness, fulfillment, and contentment that comes from living by faith in God's word even and especially when it means the denial of self. So last week we had, if anyone comes after me, let him indulge himself, take up every appetite that he has, and follow me, and I'll make him wealthy and rich. That's not what it is. If anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So I wanted you to look first, and this is by way of a New Testament example, in the life of the apostles. It's Acts chapter 5, and understand where we are. Chapter 1 of Acts was our Lord's ascension and his command to the apostles that they would be his witnesses, but they're to wait for the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the twelve so they could faithfully preach the word. Chapter 3 then, Peter and John enter into the temple complex. They worship from day one after Pentecost in the temple to show that the Old Testament was fulfilled, Old Testament sacrifices in Jesus' sacrifice. But they meet there a man who is lame from his mother's womb. And Peter says, silver and gold I don't have, but what I have I give you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the man rises up, and I submit to you, whooped and hollered and rejoiced and gave thanks. He'd been crippled from birth, unable to walk. Now he leaps and walks about. And this is used as an occasion, then, as everybody gathers around, for them to preach the gospel from the Old Testament, after which, in chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested. And their, their arrest results in an appearance before the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews presided over by the high priest, and they testify to the high priest and the members of the Sanhedrin, and then they are ordered never again to preach in his name. They are then threatened 
and they are beaten and they go about the business of preaching. In chapter 5, once again, the apostles are on trial for preaching. And uh, at the end of chapter 5, verse 33, when they heard the preaching, see in verse 31, uh, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, the teacher, by the way, of Saul of Tarsus, a teacher of the law and held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he, Gamaliel, said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding those men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be someone. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, came to nothing. This Thutis was one of the contemporary Messiah figures, envisioning Messiah to be a powerful political figure that would get rid of the Romans. Once he's slain, his followers bug out. Verse 37. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew many people after him. He also perished, another Messiah figure. And all who obeyed him were dispersed. They bugged out at the sign of threat to their earthly existence at the threat of great pain. And now I say to you, so this is Gamaliel's advice to the Sanhedrin, now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it lest you even found to fight against God. And they agreed with them, or with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, so they didn't let them go without a good flogging, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. So they still gave him that command, don't speak in his name. So they, that is Peter and John, departed from the presence of the council, downcast, forlorn, knuckles dragging on the ground, shoulders slumped over in despair. Why did we ever accept this call to be fishers of men? Do you have that in your Bible? Oh, good, because it's not there. Verse 41, so they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Hallelujah. We were persecuted for the name of Jesus. Now that sounds pretty 
Bizarre, doesn't it? That's exactly what they did. They praised God that they were given, notice, counted worthy. That includes the idea of given the privilege to suffer for his name. Given the privilege to be persecuted. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's holiness, by the way. For they heard the call of the Lord to be fishers of men. They were prepared for three years of Jesus' ministry in their seminary training. They had been anointed and ordained with the Holy Spirit. And they went out, and it happened just as Jesus told them. You will be my witnesses, together with the Holy Spirit, John 15 and 16. The time will come that they will put you out of the synagogues, that those who kill you will think that they are rendering God a service. See, I have told you these things, so that when it comes, you should not stumble. So it came, just as Jesus said, his word predicting persecution and suffering came to pass, just as he said. And so they rejoiced that they were counted worthy. That's holiness of life. It comes from God through his word received by faith. So if I were to ask you the question, why did they preach in the temple? You would say, because this isn't a hard question. Because God told them to. Okay? It's not a hard question. It's an easy answer. Why did they preach there? Because God told them. Why did they suffer for preaching in the name of Jesus? Because the Lord told them that they would suffer. That's the best answer, first and foremost. Now, there's other things that we can say about it because the sinful flesh rejects and blah, 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 and fights against God's word, and all that's true. But ultimately, they suffered because the Lord said they would suffer. And by their suffering for his name's sake, they would bear witness to him whose suffering resulted in salvation. That's holiness. And it brings about happiness. That's pretty bizarre, isn't it? Were the disciples happy at the end of chapter 5 of Acts? They were. And they were happy because every one of the members of the Sanhedrin was converted. Right? Right? No. None of them were. Bummer, at least not on this occasion. No record of it. Why were they happy? Because they suffered for, for the word down. They suffered for the word, yes. Let's be more okay. elementary than that. Thank you, Cindy. They did what the Lord told them to do. With that was freedom. With that was happiness. With that was contentment. So to live by faith in the word of the Lord accomplishes those things. Now, what is it in us that fights against that, that is afraid of those things? Our sinful flesh. Our sinful flesh, which is self-reliant. Let's see. 
someone had their, Nancy, was it you? They held on to God's truth. That the center of holiness is God's truth. That's it. Now, this example has to do with the office of the ministry. But the same truths implies when we hear the word of God, are called to trust in it as men or as women, as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, and we live according to it. Of course, the difference is that everybody knows that by nature we all want to be men and husbands and fathers, just as God taught us, right? Wrong. Our flesh fights against that. In fact, our flesh says to us, if you live according to what God's word calls you to be, it will result in unhappiness. If you want to be happy, you've got to follow your heart's desires. If you do what God's word calls you to do, you'll be discontent and your life will be unfulfilled. How many have used this expression, not that any of you would, but you may have heard it in your family, someone's living an alternative lifestyle, and you say, well, as long as they're happy, as if personal happiness is the criterion for fulfillment, contentment or the holy life, and it isn't. Wide is the path that leads to destruction, and many are those who travel by it. But the narrow road is to follow him who alone is the way, the truth, and the life, and whose word gives our lives meaning and purpose and significance. But remember, at the heart of the word that we're called to trust in, the word of the gospel is always self-denial. It's always the crucifixion of our flesh. It is never the indulging of the appetites of the flesh. But our flesh and now the world around us screams at us that happiness, contentment, fulfillment comes from self-indulgence on our terms, whatever that might mean. Okay? The second passage I want you to go to is Colossians chapter 3. And Colossians 3 is a parallel chapter in many ways to what we looked at in Ephesians 5 for a couple of weeks. In chapter 3... It begins this way. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. 
So if then you are raised with Christ, Joe, are you raised with Christ? Yes. When did this take place? And this continues to take place throughout your life as we talk with confession and absolution through the Lord's forgiving word. So he is raised with Christ in his baptism and he continues to be raised with Christ. So set your mind on things above, not on things on this earth. Verse 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Joe, have you died? All of your sins were drowned and died in baptism, and your, your life was hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is, your, is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Will you be glorified? Yes. When? At the resurrection. At the resurrection on the last day. I'm really glad you're here. <laughs> You've given all the answers correctly so far. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Here they are, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So, Joe, how were those things put to death for you in your life? Those were all put to death in my baptism. They're put to death in your baptism, but when he says... Therefore, put to death your members. Joe. Confession. confession. There you go. The life of contrition and repentance. Another Joe. So the ongoing baptismal life is lived out in confession. Okay? Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. What do they disobey? The word, the gospel of Christ. And they don't believe in which you also once walked when you lived in them. So the walk of the Christian, you used to walk in those things, all manner of uncleanness, but now you were converted and you were baptized and now you put to death those things and you walk in newness of life in Christ. Verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. There again, Joe, there's confession, putting off the old man. And it put on the new man. There's the righteousness of Christ. There's absolution language, confession and absolution. It's lovely how these passages line up with what we're doing in the congregation of prayer. <laughs> Having put on the new man who is renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created him. This is great. If I were to ask you, who is the new man, what would you say? Christ, Christ in us. Okay? So the new man is the... Christ in us, the believing nature, which is in union with Christ, and he's renewed in knowledge, according to the image of Christ who created us. So how is our mind renewed? By what, Jeremy? The By the word. The word of God renews our mind and heart as baptized children. There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, etc. But Christ is all in all. Verse 12, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, there's holiness, put on tender mercies, kindness, hum humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Who does that? 
Jesus. So put on Christ in your baptism is the holiness of Christ that is characterized by these things. So bearing with one another, verse 13, forgiving one another, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave so you, so also you must do. What I find interesting here, Paul, on the basis of your question at the very beginning of Bible class, notice, if anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also do. So if you have a complaint against someone, according to this, what is he called to do? Forgive them. I think the natural inclination is, if I have complaint against someone else, oh, I'll forgive them, but I want to see Steve grovel for a while first. <laughs> if he doesn't grovel for a while and admit sufficiently his culpability in this infraction, I have no forgiveness for him. That's not the mind of Christ. That's not the newness of life. We are actually called to forgive and to let go of sins as Christians, whether anybody confesses them or not. We're not talking about the obligation and responsibility of the office of the ministry to call to repentance and so forth, or a Christian father or mother to call children to repentance. There's a place for that, absolutely. But the general disposition of living in forgiveness and letting go of sin one against another is the holy life. But above all these things, verse 14, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Remember, Jesus says love covers a multitude of sins. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Where does the peace of God emanate from? Yes, but be a little more specific. It emanates from the word, that's true. It, from Christ's absolution. Okay? So... Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God, means, therefore, having been justified, declared righteous by faith, we have forgiveness from God. And we stand in that. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. So then this, let the peace of God rule in your hearts, the forgiveness of Christ rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. Now go back to Peter and John when they left just being flogged and ordered never to preach in the name of Jesus again. What were they? Thankful. Because in what they suffered according to the word, they were grounded in the word. They were strengthened in the word. They had the certainty of the word. So then, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Holiness of life is a life lived by faith in the word of God. The foundation for that holy life is Christ's absolution, that we have been raised with Christ. We're called to put to death the deeds of the flesh in confession and absolution, be renewed in our minds by the word of God that we might live confidently in the station in life to which God has called us. Notice then what follows, 
Wives, submit to your husbands. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Servants, obey in all things. That's the holy life. And then again, verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Peter and John, did they do what they did as apostles there in the face of persecution? Did they do it heartily? With their whole heart, with vigor? Yes. Where, what gave them the strength to do that? Again, the word. In Christ's gospel. Coupled with the sign of their own persecution, we're on the right path. We're leading a holy life. Now, our flesh fights against those things. Even though everybody knows it's easy to be a wife, a husband, children, fathers, servants. No, it isn't. It's tough. It's tough because our flesh fights against the calling of God with self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, following the appetites of the flesh, and so forth. Now, the final part, and I'll open it up for questions, and then we have a concluding thing we need to do. I can't emphasize to you enough, when we talk about holiness, which is living as the baptized faithful from the word of God, that this holiness is a wellspring of happiness and contentment and fulfillment and joy, the importance of singing. Churches that don't sing, churches that don't promote singing, violate the word of God. Because at the heart of the Christian life of holiness is singing. You may not do it well. You may not be very good at it. But I submit to you, when they got back with the others, Peter and John, they sang a hymn. Even Jesus, with the twelve, on the night of his betrayal, went out from the upper room singing a hymn. Those things are as important as the sermon. Because he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in boring lectures. <laughs> in psalms, the psalms were always sung. Hymns, hymns were always sung. Spiritual songs like the Benedictus and the Magnificat and the Nunc Dimittis and the Gloria in Excelsis. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus as husbands, wives, fathers, and mothers. It is amazing how when the word of God is put to song, how powerful it is against Satan, who attacks us from the outside, and our own flesh from within. Singing with full-throated vigor the word of God and the great hymns of faith is a time in which the congregation is committing less sin if you want to quantify it, than at any other time. It's true. Okay, Paul. Do we have an idea as to what the distinction between hymns and spiritual songs at that time was? Do we have a distinction between what hymns and spiritual songs at that time was? Well, I believe that in this passage um, hymns 
and spiritual songs. Spiritual songs, songs generated and inspired by the Holy Spirit are what hymns are. Which doesn't mean he's only talking about canonical spiritual songs. Canonical would be like the Magnificat and so forth. But the hymns of Paul Gerhardt. So in that respect, hymn 756 is where I want you to go to next. What's interesting, Paul, is the church has always sung. Solomon um, established choirs to sing at the temple. This is why I say to you, church choirs are not an option. They're not. Where there is no church choir or choirs, where children aren't singing and adults aren't singing and children and adults singing together and there are not choirs there to lead the congregation, it becomes an anemic con congregation, a truncated congregation, a congregation that has a different aspect about the Christian life, the holy life. One of the things that confounded the persecutor of Christians in the first uh, three centuries when they were taken to their death was the singing of those Christians along the way, the rejoicing. Nothing captures the essence of the grace of God better than when you sing the grace of God and then the enemies of the grace of God hear it. Uh, they have a violent reaction to it. But it is an expression of the happiness and the contentment and the fulfillment that one has in their vocation. So if you look at this hymn, and I intentionally uh, planned to do Hymn 756 by Paul Gerhardt. That's why I planted that question uh, with Paul so he would ask that question. Okay, got Joe's Q&A and now Paul's. No, is because I want you to notice in light of how hard it is to be a husband, the challenges to being a wife, especially if you've got this brute of a husband. You know, right, Marty? Oh, no. <laughs> how difficult it is, how it challenges us. Singing is a way in which we endure the trials and tribulations of life. Okay, so look at the words. Why should cross and trial grieve me? Christ is near. With his cheer, never will he leave me. Who can rob me of the heaven that God's son for me won when his life was given? Nobody can. When life's troubles rise to meet me, though their weight may be great, they will not defeat me. God, my loving Savior, sends them. He who knows all my woes knows how best to end them. And one of the things we'll be talking about in the future is how suffering and disappointment of life is coupled with the word of God, the best teacher of the holy life. Well, let's not, let's not just read this. Let's sing this hymn, 756.
We'll have a few comments next week yet about that as we move on to the next portion of our study. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.